Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast, presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and this week my guest is Jason Lusk. Jason is the creative director as well as the travel editor for Golf Week and GolfWeek.com, and that means that he gets to go and check out all the world's greatest golf courses before they open up to the public. He gets to talk to golf course designers and architects about what they're trying to do, check out all the cool properties, check out the great resorts, plays a lot of golf. As you're going to hear, he had quite a year in 2019, and he's going to tell us all the best places to go on your next buddy trip. He also explains the different things that go into golf course design nowadays, especially as they relate to distance and how far people are hitting the ball. Lots of things that he's going to share with us. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Back Book, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the Take Anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. So I'd like to welcome Jason Lust to the Four Press Podcast. Jason has Jason has the job that a lot of people who don't work in the golf media industry think all of us have. When I sit down in a plane, if the person next to me strikes up a conversation and asks what I do, if I've got not a lot to do, I will say, yeah, you know what? I'm a senior writer with Golf Week Magazine and GolfWeek.com. Jason has the real gig that everybody should aspire to. And in addition to being the creative director of Golf Week, he's also the travel editor. And you can follow his exploits and see all the places he goes up on Instagram by following him at JLU Golf Week. Uh, once again, JLU Golf Week on Instagram. Jason, welcome to the Four Press. How you doing, pal? Uh, doing good. How's everybody out there? I, I hope everyone's having a good time getting ready for Christmas. Uh, we, we endured an ice storm. Earlier this week, I know that you were on the road. You were in Sea Island, Georgia, probably having the time of your life. While we had uh, here in New England, I had an ice storm that basically uh, I have a dogwood tree in the front of my house that looks like it was covered in about an inch of glass, but it was not glass. It was all ice that I had to go out there and smack around. Every blade of grass on my yard is covered in ice. So how are we doing? Um, we're trying to warm ourselves right now, but uh, how are things going with you? Really good, and it, even far south into Georgia, on coastal southern Georgia at Sea, or sea Island, uh, on Monday we played an 80-degree temperature in shorts, and on Wednesday morning, yesterday, I teed off, and it was 41 degrees and blowing 40 miles an hour when we teed off. So it, it's not quite the same frigid temperature that you have up there, but even down in the south, it's affecting the rounds of golf right now. Well, that, that warms my heart. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It makes me feel good to hear that you're not quite the 80 degrees I can't even think about, but you have been to some of the greatest places in the United States to play golf, and you've been been off the continent and stuff like that. Tell me, where were some of the best places where you played golf in 2019? 
Oh, I, I, th this was a spoiled year. Th this was my first year really being in charge of the, the travel beat. And uh, I, I, I made so many special trips this year. I, I've been everywhere from Bandon, Dunes, and Oregon to Ireland. I, I played nine rounds of golf in seven days in Ireland leading up to the British Open. Uh, excuse me, the, the Open Championship, I, I should say, for those who now, British on, on this show, it's the British Open. That's just fine. Don't worry about that. All right. But uh, so, so I've seen a lot of stuff. I was in Puerto Rico. I've been to the Dominican Republic this year, and I, I've been all across the country. I, I've played 71 golf courses this year. Talk to me a little bit about Bandon. A lot of things are going on at Bandon. I've been to Bandon once, um, and it is it's it's sort of like a you know the pilgrimage to to Mecca for golfers. It is pretty unbelievable. Had you been to Bandon before, or was this your first time? I, I've been several times, uh, going back all the way to 2012. And it, it's just such a special trip. It, it's something that everybody needs to see. The, the place is unlike anything else. There's no other accoutrements to it. There's no tennis courts. There's no swimming pools. It's all about the golf. And when you finish playing your 18 holes of golf, you either go out for another 18 holes or you go play the, right. the 13 hole par three course or you go to the putting green and, and hang out with your buddies and, and maybe have a cocktail and, and just make the most of it. But it's all about the golf. And, and that's what's so special out there is, uh, there's nothing to distract you from the, the game itself. You just go out there and play, and it's all about the golf from morning till sunset. Mm -hmm. And then you try to recover at night and, and get your legs to work for the next morning and, and go back out and do it again. Well, that, to, to me, that's one of the things about it is that there's some resorts we can get into it a little bit in some places where you might go with your friends, you might bring a spouse or significant other, where there are things to do if they don't play or if they don't want to play 36 holes a day. Um, for example, like Pinehurst has a beautiful resort and a little town that's kind of quaint, and lots of different spa things, and there's tennis, and there's other things to do. You can go lawn bowling. If you're going to Bandon, you're going there. You want to get like the right crew of buddies with you, because as you sort of said, like once you're on property abandoned, everything is great. There is, there is no off-property abandoned, to, to speak of. There's no nightlife abandoned. Nightlife abandoned, to me, was grabbing a beer or having a scotch and walking out. There's an outdoor fireplace that I remember I found outside of the lodge and you literally like, you know, the, the sun is down because if, if I'm not playing golf then the sun must be down and it must be pitch black dark, that that's what you do. That that's nightlife. And you have to have the right crew of guys with you. Which is your favorite course when you get out to Bandon? I probably like Pacific dunes most. Um, it, it's, it's got the coolest routing along the cliffs, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because there's a, a surprise element when you get there for the first time. You play the first hole, and it's down in the dunes. It, it's a shortish par four, a uh, nice little opener. And then you play the second hole, and it's in the dunes. And you can't really see anything except for the hole you're on. And then you go about 50 steps and walk up onto a, a dune for the tee shot on number three. Yep. And the entire property just opens up in front of you. You can see for miles in any direction. You, the, the coast is out there. You're playing a par five that stretches to the very edge of the cliffs. And all of a sudden, that's the aha moment of being at Bandon Dunes. And uh, the original course there, uh, Bandon Dunes itself, has a, a similar moment. But you're already seeing some of the property as you play number two. You can look around, and it's kind of cool. But as you play the, let me make sure I count them correctly, number four on Bandon Dunes, mm -hmm. uh, it's a par four that doglegs to the right. And there's big mounding on either side of the fairway as it curves 90 degrees. And as you walk down that fairway and look out, and there's the ocean and the cliffs and the the sea life and the birds and the wind and it—it's it, just cool how Bandon Dunes has been able to present those aha moments. Yeah, there are a bunch of those aha moments when you start going around. I even, even on the other courses. I mean, and we can talk about 
how many courses that resort has on Golf Week's best that you can play list. And it's four of them. And every one of them is spectacular. And even you sort of alluded to um, the par three course, the preserve, which I've had a chance to play a couple times. The first time I played it with my own clubs, and I think the golf course or, or the holes range from maybe about 68 yards to maybe about 180, 190. There's, there's, I think there's one tee shot. I forget. It might be the ninth or the 10th that sort of goes over a, a gorge onto a little bit of a peninsula kind of lofted kind of green. But it, it was fun, and it used every club and all, all different kinds of clubs. You can then play it with hickory shafted clubs and go really old school, which was a really neat experience that I got a feeling a lot of other resorts look at and are jealous at. Is how, how influential in the golf course resorts, the golf resorts, I should say, that you've seen this year, do you think Band and Dunes has become? Oh, it's tremendous. The, the effect they've had across the industry is tremendous. And, and you mentioned the, the par three course, and that's one example of that to where now you're seeing these par three courses creep up everywhere. Pinehurst has one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so many different places have them, and they're so much fun. But the the one that really started the trend of doing it at these bigger resorts and, and making that part of the itinerary and not just a little sideshow for the kids was Bandon Dunes. And um, now you can find these types of courses everywhere. Other resorts are looking at building them. There's discussions all over the place about putting in par three courses, about putting in big putting courses. And it, it's just something to do for people who don't necessarily want to play 54 holes a day. It gives you a lot more opportunity. And Bandon didn't put their par three course on some scrubby little piece of land in no. the back of the hotel. They, they stuck it right on these prime cliffs, and it's beautiful. You, you stand up there, and you think it, it's, it might be the prettiest spot on the property. It's fantastic. It really is stunning. The other thing that they did really, really well is the punch bowl, the, the putting green, which I believe is 36 holes. And there's bar service that goes along with that. So I remember having lunch one day, and we scheduled in uh, about a two-hour window for lunch, which when you're trying to play 36 holes is a little bit ambitious. It was July, so we had daylight on our side on that particular trip. But we finished around, went up, had lunch up there at, I believe that's it's the, the lunch areas around Pack Dunes, and ha- had it. And then we go out, and someone's like, "Oh, look, let's let's hit the putting course." And so we're going out there, and then a great, you know, a little bit of service that I wasn't anticipating. I was lining up a putt, and I can just sort of sense as I was looking down at the ball that someone was walking up towards our group. And I look up, silver tray in hand. Someone's like, "Hey, what kind of drinks do you guys need?" And I'm like, "Oh, I don't even need to leave this place. And if they're going to start bringing drinks out here and having these crazy, you know, here's a seventy foot putt with nine or ten different breaks." And we're laughing our heads off, and all of a sudden they're going to bring drinks into this. That that's the rest of my day right there. Forget the fact that I was going, you know, over over to play. I think we we're going to play trails, man, and trails later that afternoon. Um, it was it was sensational. I love, absolutely adore those big uh, big putting greens and those big putting courses. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. It it is so much fun to just hang out. And some of the places are starting to light their putting greens and and things along those lines to make it accessible even after dark. And it, it just stretches the evening. It makes it all about the golf. You, you're not trying to go off property. You don't have to get in a car and go anywhere. You just stay close to where you're sleeping and and, and play a lot of golf. And when you're not playing the 18-hole course, you, you keep at it on one of the other facilities. Yep. Now, you also went to Pinehurst this year, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Early part of the year, I was at Pinehurst. Um, played Pinehurst number 4, uh, which Gil Hance rebuilt recently. And then it became part of the U.S. Amateur this year in the, the first couple of rounds of the U.S. Amateur. And, and that was a really fun facility. Talk to me a little bit about the changes and the different things that have been updated to number four. Because I played number four 
the last time I played number four was probably around 2006 or 2007. So it's been a while since I've played four. What's it like now? Uh, there's a lot of sand now. What what they did is remove turf, and I don't remember the exact number of acres, but it was somewhere between 40 and 60 acres of turf were removed. Uh, that helps with the water shortage. That that helps with maintenance. They go out there and they plant the native scrub. It, it's much like what they did at Pinehurst Number Two back before the U.S. Open returned in mm-hmm. what year was that? 2012. Yep. Um, and uh, so it, now it seems very similar to Pinehurst Number Two, but the greens are not the same. The greens are definitely Gil Hans's greens. He he took a property that had had a golf course existing on it for decades and rethought about how they're going to play it and how it should play up there on the sand hills. So the, the greens have a lot of flow to them. They, they don't have, you know, crown centers like uh, the number two course. So it, it's a different experience, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And as Gil Hance said, I, I didn't want to build Donald Ross's greens, which are the greens next door on right. number two, because the best example in the world of those greens are right next door. So yeah. why would we copy so, yeah. so he put in an experience, and it, it's really cool. It's a lot of fun to go up there. And they have also added different elements to it because now they have, what is it, the cradle? Tell people who are not familiar with the cradle what that is. That's their short par three course. And it plays where number one, uh, the, the number one hole or number nine hole on one of the other courses used to be. They, they restructured some of the other courses, some of the, uh, I, I don't want to say smaller courses, but the not Pinehurst number two. Right, not the, not the main attraction golf courses. Right. And they, they put a, uh, a short par three course in there. I think the longest hole is 130 yards maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go out there, you take three or four clubs and a putter. Uh, you, you could play it. Most people could play it with two clubs without any problem. Take a pitching wedge or a nine iron and then maybe a lob wedge or something in your putter. And you, you get these little small pencil bags at the check-in stand. And there's music playing around the course. There's cool. this cool little Airstream trailer that's about eight feet long that they've converted into a bar that you pass twice as you go around and around. And for your one greens fee, you can play it all day. So th- there are people up there right now who are not playing the bigger courses and just going round and round on the cradle because for one greens fee, they get golf all day, they get drinks, they get to hang out with their buddies, and it's just so much fun because the greens are so extreme out there that, that Gil Hans built that you're trying to play trick shots. You're, you're trying to hit a ball off of this mound over on the left and see if you can make it roll 30 feet to the right down yep. to the hole. Are you, You're having to hit it over this knob and – there's just so many different things uh, in play on those greens and, and so many different things on each green that each time you play it, it's a little different. So it's just a lot of fun. You can spend all day racing around that place. So it seems like over the last, say, eight or ten years, and we're maybe sort of seeing the fruits of it now over the last couple of years, is that there's almost like this return to fun and return to the fun element, the, the vacation, quote-unquote, element to a lot of these resorts, which seems like it should be something that's cooked in already. I mean, you would want to enjoy yourself on the stay. But maybe it seems like, and I'm curious about your opinion on this, as a lot of these resorts and go-to destinations were constructed, there was so much focus on having the championship-style golf course, You know that you have to have the, the great white whale of a golf course that everyone's going to come to, and that's, that's where we're going to focus all of our attention. Now, though, you're seeing par-3 courses that you've sort of alluded to. You're seeing other amenities that are not that main golf course. And sometimes if you go to a place like Bandon, you're going to get just more of the golf stuff. So you get the, the putting greens. You get um, some of the dining and things like that afterwards. But it's, but it's about the golf. Then you get to other places, Pinehurst. I'm curious to hear about your trip recently to Sea Island where there have to be other fun elements. Would you agree that like, they're trying to bring the fun back to, to a lot of these different venues and, and resorts? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Sea Island is a perfect example. They built a huge, expansive putting green right behind the lodge there. 
next to number 10 T on the plantation course, which was just recently redone. And it, it's right up against the water. Right right now, it looks out of, uh, at that ship that turned over or that was full of BMWs with 4,000 BMWs. So that's right offshore. Nice. But uh, that'll, that'll be gone soon enough. But it, it's just a gorgeous putting green. And I was out there the other night with a couple of the golf pros there, uh, mainly with Patrick Richardson, uh, who, who was serving as a host for me up there. And uh, we just stroll out there in the evening right as the sun was going down. And it's beautiful setting, sun going down on the water, the tide coming in. And there were six kids running around that green putting. The smallest girl had to be about three. The best. And she she didn't make a single putt. But every time she would putt, she would throw her putter down and do a cartwheel. And uh, she, she was just having a great time out there. And to her, there was no formality to it. Just go out on the putting green and whack the ball around. And, and she was having a great time. And the parents are hanging out at a fire pit right there, and it, it was just a perfect spot. That's that's like the kind of stuff that's going to make Norman Rockwell puke. I mean, that that's that's the most idyllic kind of – that's exactly what a lot of these places are looking for. You also had a chance – Sea Island has built quite a teaching center, and they've built a lot of high-tech stuff in there. Tell me about – you went through a putter fitting at Sea Island, and we're up on a SAM Lab putting, putting uh, operation? Yeah, I was working with David, their uh, uh, director of putting instruction there. And it, it just revealed that I don't know what I'm doing at all. I, I am so bad. I, I don't know how to aim. Ba- basically, I aim the putter five degrees to the right at 15 uh, feet. I'm missing by six or seven inches right off the bat. And then I try to pull it with some awful handsy stroke back to the left into the hole. And uh, you, you never know what you're doing like that until they put a little science on it. Because uh, to the untrained eye, it looks like I might make a few putts. But if I do, it's just luck. It's just timing and luck <laughs> at the ball goes I am so bad. I, I'm sitting there so embarrassed during that thing. I'm supposed to be able to play a little bit. And I, I feel like David, you know, wanted to just tell me to get out of here because it was it, it was really bad. It, he he was great and, and gave me some stuff to work on. But you realize quickly at some of these performance centers that you don't really know what you're doing at all. Well, there's always croquet. But uh, that's the beautiful thing about golf. Who cares? If you're, if you're in a venue like that, who cares? I mean, you wake up in the morning, you go out, you, you do that kind of thing. Um, I remember the first time that I went to Pebble Beach was 2002 and just waking up in the morning and I was staying, I, I was fortunate enough to stay at Spanish Bay. And even if you're going to get smacked around by those golf courses, even if, you know, I was, I was getting some instruction from Laird Small, I was there actually going through the Pebble Beach Golf Academy where we were taking lessons in the morning at Spyglass Hill and then playing the resort courses in the afternoon. So we, we played Spanish Bay, or excuse me, um, yeah, Spanish Bay. We played Spyglass and we played Pebble on the last day. How can you have a bad time? I mean, that was one of those things where, like, you know, if I didn't bust 90, I still wasn't going to care because when I opened up the sash in the morning and looked out and there was the Pacific Ocean, there was this rolling green turf, and it couldn't be more beautiful, you know, if you tried, it, your day is going to be great. So have heart. Don't worry. Your putting sucks. Join the rest of us. No big deal. Um, tell me a little bit about your trip to Vegas, because if I'm not mistaken, you also had an opportunity to visit the new Win Las Vegas, right? I, I did. They they rebuilt a course that had been closed for two years, and it's a Tom Fazio course, and it's just the most Vegas thing in the world. It, <laughs> it sits 500 yards off of the strip. Um, it, it's a beautiful golf course. You tee off on number one, and you think you're in South Carolina, except for the fact that there's hotels. And in the days uh, I was there, they were having – at a convention center nearby, they were doing drift car racing. So we're hearing the squealing tires and peeling out and race cars. And But the the, I, the, the setting itself is ideal for golf, uh, the, the way they've constructed it. They moved a lot of earth. Uh, each hole has you know some privacy to itself. Uh, it's on rolling terrain. You, you just wouldn't believe it's in the middle of a flat desert in the middle of Arizona. 
but the the 18th hole there is just crazy. It's uh it it's a hole that people are either going to really love or really hate because it's a 250 yard par three now over water with a 50 foot tall waterfall behind it. So the it, it it it's loud. It's right in front of the hotel. There's people watching. Uh, it, it's a cool hole. It, it's it, it's something everybody should see and then decide for themselves whether they like it or not. But it, it's about as subtle as a gold lame sport coat. I mean, it's just it, it's just Vegas in a nutshell. What, what do you think about Vegas golf in general? I mean, there's obviously there's a PJ Tour event there up at Summerlin. Um, there's mm-hmm. some other places. Rio Seco comes to mind. Now the Wind Course um, is is Vegas a, a good place for a golf buddy trip, or is that someplace where you play golf when you happen to be in Vegas for a conference or a trade show, and it's really not someplace that you would sort of consider to be fertile ground for the for the golf vacation? I think it could be a great golf vacation if you're able to focus on golf and and not fall into the million distractions up and down uh, the strip there in Vegas. Yep. Be, because Courses were a lot of fun. They're good, solid desert courses. I, I played several courses there. Um, I, I played uh, the Wolf Course at Paiute, up, uh, about 30 miles north of town on my own. And the, the wind was blowing. It was a little chilly, but the conditions were perfect. And it's a beautiful golf course that Pete Dye built there. And I just had a great time going around and around on that. And, and the TPC courses are fun. They're always in great shape. Yeah. It, it's a place you could go if you're willing to drive half an hour each day to get to your tee time and play a lot of great golf. Um uh, the, the problem, of course, is that once you throw in the casinos and everything like that, it might be hard to get up for that 8 a.m. Yeah. tea time. Yeah, that was the thing. So I've gone to cover the PGA Tour event. Um, I believe it's the Shriners Hospital for Children Open that's up at TPC Summerlin. And I've only really stayed on the strip twice. And to me, I haven't had a chance to play golf in Las Vegas, but I was able to got, get my bucket list item knocked off before we passed away going to see Don Rickles, which was what I really needed to do. I just, for one time in my life, you know, to, to go and see him. And it was exactly the show that I wanted to see. He was chirping old time jokes. It was right out of the vaudeville stuff, making fun of old fat ladies in the, in the front calling guys hockey puck. It was, it was exactly what I wanted to see. I had the buffet. I walked the strip back to my hotel and was looking around at humanity. And I was just depressed. I was just like, this is the worst form of humanity that's out here. It's like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday and uh, you want to see a freak show in action, walk up the Vegas Strip basically at any time, but walk it on a random Tuesday and just think about your lot in life. Um, so buddy trips, in, by and large, what are some of the things that you look for? Give me three or four things that an area or resort needs to have in order to make it you know, a really good, worthwhile buddy trip spot. Well, the, the golf has to be special, and I think it has to be the focus. Uh, there are a lot of places places that offer a lot of different things like Vegas. You just mentioned could be a decent buddy's trip, I guess, but to, to be a really special place, it's got to be focused on the golf. Uh, and everybody's got to see something new, uh, introducing your friends to, to a new property, whether it be Bandon Dunes, Cabot Cliffs, Pinehurst, anything along those lines, uh, Kiowa ocean course, just something they haven't seen before that, that's new and special, uh, kind of bonds everybody. They're out there doing something really cool together. And that's what you're looking for. You, you don't want it to be like, just another round of golf that you would play in your hometown. You, you need to find something different. And it, it's not so much about the food and the drink for me. Uh, I, I'll go back to an interview I did with Mike Kaiser, who is the founder and owner of Bandon Dunes and, and several other great courses around the world now. And he mentioned that at Bandon Dunes, they wanted good food and good drink, but not necessarily excellent food and excellent drink because he wasn't catering to an audience that was there to eat five-star meals. Interesting. Uh, like you mentioned, people want to eat their food. They, they, they've got these egg roll type things that, that are kind of Scottish-based egg rolls there at Bandon Dunes. 
And it's not anything you would find on a five-star menu, but after you walk 36 holes in the wind, it's the best thing you're ever going to eat. <laughs> yep. And you're just going to stand around that fire pit and hang out, and it's a great time. So it, it's not all about the food and the drink. It, it's more about the golf and, and reasonable accommodations, nice accommodations, but they don't have to be five-star necessarily. Uh, it, if five-star is in your budget and you can go do that, and you're flying your private plane to whatever spot, you know, the Dominican Republic or, or Sea Island or wherever, and you, you want that five-star experience, great, go for it. But it doesn't have to be that to have a really good buddies trip. You know, you want something clean. You want something mm-hmm. convenient. And uh, that just makes it so easy. There, there's nothing more cool than tumbling out of bed and walking a few steps and ending up on the first tee box. And, uh, you know, the best buddy trips give you that opportunity. Hey, ever hear about the ex-football star who robbed a Brinks truck, then tucked $400,000 under his arm like a football and escaped using an inner tube? No? Then you'll want to listen to season one of The Sneak, a podcast by For the Win and USA Today Sports. Here, take a quick listen to the man who actually pulled that off. In 2008, a former D1 football star pulled off a robbery so daring and so strange that it went viral worldwide. It was a perfect crime story. There was just one problem. It wasn't the real story of what happened. I didn't just one day wake up and decide to rob an armored truck. There were smaller things that had happened. I promised myself this was the last thing I was going to do. The more like elaborate something is and the more moving parts, but that's more that can like go wrong. I made some crucial errors. Number one, I escaped on an inner tube. Number two, I hired decoys to help me pull off the robbery. Every single thing I wanted to do, I did. My transformation, I guess, as a person came at the worst time of my life. I pulled this off. I wasn't worried about money anymore, but I was more miserable than ever. No money can change, like, who somebody is as a person. I was busted by a homeless guy. The Sneak is a new, serialized true crime podcast from For the Win and USA Today Sports, streaming only on Wondery Plus. Subscribe at wondery.com slash P-L-U-S. So the first, I remember the first you know, sort of orchestrated buddy trip that I went on was to Pinehurst. And this must have been back in, I think, 2004, 2003, 2004. And to me, it was it was perfect because we flew into Raleigh-Durham and met a couple of guys. We went down and it's an hour and a half, I believe. They still didn't, they didn't have the main done-up highway going from Raleigh-Durham down to Pinehurst. They were getting ready to build it in anticipation of the 2005 U.S. Open. So it must have been, yeah, like around three or four. And the thing that I discovered that was great, the only, the only knock that I had was that we stayed at the Carolina Hotel, which was fantastic. It, you know, you roll up, and there's this beautiful Grand Dame Hotel, and everything's great, but you had to bring a dinner jacket, or you had to bring a sport jacket if you were going to eat dinner there in the evenings, which is fine, but when you've played 36, sometimes just being a little bit more relaxed for dinner was was what I was looking for. The thing that I really appreciated about it was that they had so many golf courses, and once we parked the car and got out after arriving there for the first time, you didn't have to touch the car again. 
They shuttled us to everywhere. We had our choice of golf courses. We played, I think, the first day, number four. Then we played seven and eight. Then we played two, and I had made arrangements. We went down the street, went off property, and we played Pine Needles, and then drove back up, stayed overnight in Durham at the Duke University Inn, just off campus at Duke University, played that golf course the following morning, and then caught the plane back north out of there. The convenience factor to me was sensational. How much do, do should that sort of go into a buddy trip? Because I would imagine while the food and the drink may not be you know critical for your overall experience, a lot of people are, are going to want to have a few drinks. They're not going to want to have to think about where do I have to drive? How do I get there? And a lot of these resorts must be investing in ways that people don't have to think about that stuff. Yeah, re- resorts are doing that, and they're they're moving people around the property safely and, and getting you back to where you need to be and handling your clubs and all your equipment so you don't have to think about it. But it, as much as I like that domestically, when it, when you travel overseas, like if you go to Ireland, you're going to spend time in a van. And if you hire a professional driver, then everything is taken care of for you, and that can be a great buddy's trip. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends on the setting and what you have in mind. Uh, so one of the great things at Bandon is that, you know, you're never five minutes from a tee box. Right. And uh, same thing at Pinehurst, uh, same thing at Kiowa, same thing at Sea Island. It, it, name anything. They're, they're along those lines. But then it, if you're willing to to organize it and get a driver, um, then those problems are taken care of. And they do that overseas very well. So broad, broadly speaking, Jason, how do you let, let's say that my buddies and I, we want to do the Ireland trip. How do you go about organizing a trip if you've never been, if everybody's sort of going for the first time and wanting to knock off uh, a, a few of the courses in Ireland? How do you go about actually organizing it, getting drivers and hooking up tea times? How does it work? There, there are several booking agencies where all you have to do is call them and they will take care of the rest. Uh, the, the group that set up my Irish trip earlier this year, I, I was there for seven days for the golf specifically. And I did the driving myself just because, uh, you know, I was there working. I wasn't having too much fun on a buddy's trip. Uh, you know, poor me, I guess. Yeah, poor you. But, exactly. Right. Exactly. But the uh, you, you call these companies and they take care of everything for you. All you have to do is have your passport and an airplane ticket and they will handle everything else for you. So it's stress free and you pay a little bit for that convenience, but it's so worth it because. The last thing you want to do when you're over there is try to figure out how to get to your next tea time two hours away. You, mm-hmm. you don't want to be making those kinds of decisions on the ground. So just go with one of the professional booking agencies and let them handle the details. And then you can just handle having all the fun. It, it makes life really easy. And would you recommend the same thing if someone's thinking about going over to Scotland and doing the pilgrimage to St. Andrews and playing someplace you know, along those lines in that sort of circle of, of courses as well? Just, just bite the bullet, have a service take care of it, and take, take the worry out of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's as convenient as having Uber or Lyft here in the States. It's mm-hmm. it's so simple to just walk out and get on your van. Um, th- there's no fun and no joy in trying to drive on small Irish or Scottish roads that are curving through sheep fields when your GPS is giving you bad directions and the road is eight feet wide. You don't want to do that after a few drinks in no, the dark. It, no. It's no place no. to be. I'll, I'll tell you what. I went. So I was in Ireland in Monaghan, County Monaghan, which is in central Ireland, um, for a wedding in 2001 and I was, the, the bride was, was from there and she, we, we, she met us at the hotel where we were staying. She's like, Oh, come on back to the, my house. My parents are having some people over there. There's a small reception. Great. We hop in the car. I'm driving and I've driven in Britain before, so I'm not too put off 
by driving on the other side of the road for us here in the United States. She, of course, having grown up there, is is driving like Emerson Fittipaldi, whipping across these little turns, these lane and a half wide, small Irish roads through the countryside. I was petrified stone sober at noon. I can't even yep. imagine after playing 36 holes of, of going around. It's getting dark. I don't know where I'm going. I'm not following somebody. And I've got to take the proper right turn off the wrong side of the road for me at an unmarked intersection in the middle of nowhere. No, that's yep. not how I choose to spend my vacation time. It uh, It's definitely got to be worth having a driver and being able to sack out, catch a few winks, or enjoy the scenery in the back of a van. A couple other things from, from a golf course perspective that are, that are happening over the course of 2019 as we get into 20. It came out and was written first by uh, our friends at the Augusta Chronicle that Augusta National has acquired – quite a bit of land uh, that actually takes up the eighth and the ninth hole at nearby Augusta Country Club. And those holes are actually going to be rebuilt. And it certainly sounds like there's going to be construction and that the iconic 13th hole, the par five, that's actually one of the easiest golf courses during every Masters, is at some point or another going to be lengthened and and drawn out. Um, What are your thoughts about Augusta National as a golf course and how it has been forced to sort of adopt, or I should say adapt, and, and change itself given how far guys hit the ball and what the Augusta National really wants the Masters to be? Well, well first for that 13th hole, I, I blame Bubba Watson and I blame you because you wrote a story about Bubba Watson and what he did with that tee shot in 2014 uh, where he hit that ball over the pines on number 13 and left himself, I, I think it said 140 yards and he hit a sand wedge. Yep. And, yeah, uh, that is insane. Those trees are so tall. There's a creek there. There's a hill. You can't see where you're going. It's a blind shot over a forest is what that looks like. And I think that shot with that Bubba hit and a few others have really affected how Augusta is thinking about that hole. Um, it was after that that they apparently really started looking at how to expand the hole, how to stretch the hole and make it play more like par five again. Yep. Um, you know, distance is a, a complicated thing, uh, especially when you factor in the PGA Tour pros. And I can understand a place like Augusta wanting to protect the shot values that they've had since Bobby Jones built the place. Or Bobby Jones didn't build it, but Bobby Jones was there for the since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they want to protect those shot values. Um, but at the same time, Augusta is kind of an anomaly because so much focus is on the Masters Tournament. That, that place is a members club. 51 weeks out of the year, but the biggest week of every year is the Masters, and they want it to show right and play right on TV and in their tournament for their their fans, their their patrons, as you would call them. And so they have the money and the wherewithal to do whatever they need to do. But I don't know if that's a great model for how it works at every other golf course on the planet, because most courses don't have the money, they don't have the capital to invest to, to buy property, adjacent mm-hmm. property, to stretch holes and, and build things out. And Augusta doesn't have to worry about its customer because uh, I imagine there's quite a waiting list to get in. I don't. I don't think anybody would reject a membership there. Yeah, I think that uh, I think the membership is whatever number that they want and and whatever number they be. And and obviously, money is no object. That that is not a problem. They have enough money in the coffers, and if they need to pass the hat, they've got more than they can ever spend on keeping up that facility and and doing what they need to do. So um, yeah, I 100% agree. I think that they are an anomaly. They're also so influential though. And I think that you would probably agree that the, that what they do and how they operate that tournament, which is 
basically thought of by all the players. I had Brendan Steele on the other day, and I've talked to other ones as well who've been on the podcast. And to a man, they all say like the the best run event is the Masters. Um, they're they're really influential, and they're influential in the golf course sort of maintenance and uh, and how maintenance is done here in the United States because they're so green and it's so beautiful, which is great, but they're also so unique. That property was originally a nursery. They had so many beautiful plants and flowers and the, the the hilliness of the land that they have allows them to do certain things and create such a unique environment. Not every place is capable of having Augusta-like stuff. I, I talked to Mike Davis once and asked him the question after the 2014 U.S. Open, which you alluded to earlier at Pinehurst, were they disappointed that it wasn't as influential from an agronomy standpoint, the fact that there were waste areas, that you were watering fairways, but you weren't watering off the fairway, that brown was the new green, and that from an environmental standpoint, Pinehurst number two had taken on a whole new light. And he didn't really answer the question, got a little bit evasive, but 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 I came away from thinking, yeah, they really, they being the USGA, really wanted to showcase how natural golf with a much more hands-off approach could be great golf. Augusta National is the opposite. It's great golf, but it is manicured to a T. Do you think that Augusta National's influence from a golf course maintenance standpoint is almost too big? Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways it's had a, a kind of terrible effect on golf. Um, and, and that's no fault of Augusta. They, they want a green golf course and they do what they need to do. And somehow they keep it green and it still plays firm and fast. But for the most part, like if you came to Florida right now, so many golf courses in Florida are buried in ryegrass. And ryegrass is not a great putting surface. It, it's not a great playing surface. It, it's wet. It holds water. You get mud balls. And it's all done in the effort to keep the golf course green throughout the winter, which is the busy season down here in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were at the, the Golf Week Architecture Summit at Streamsong Resort, the, the new cor- our new resort that has three courses in central Florida here, out in the middle of nowhere on an old phosphate mining site uh, that Mosaic, the, the chemical company, built. And they are fantastic golf courses. And Rusty Mercer, who is their director of agronomy, talked about that specifically, that he is not going to chase green. He said he can make a golf course green or he can make a golf course play properly, and he's focused on making the golf course play properly, which means the ball rolls, it bounces all over the place, uh, th- things are moving. The, it, it's not you know just shooting a lawn dart in in the middle of the fairway, which is what happens with most other courses in Florida. Mm-hmm. And Stream Song's courses are ranked number two, three, and four in the state on Golf Week's best courses you can play list, which is our list for public access courses. And uh, so they're having great success with that theory. And you know, we we played the red course when we were down there last week, and it was brown, and the ball was moving, and the wind was blowing, and you could play ground approach shots, and you could land a ball 40 yards short of a green and, and run it in. Uh, we stopped and putted from 100 yards out on one hole just to see what would happen. That's and, great. Uh, so, so it was a lot of fun to see the ball rolling around like that. And that's Augusta's influence, though, to where golf became a green sport uh, because it was green on television at the best event on television every year. And Augusta can pull that off. They, they have the resources to do whatever they need to do. They can pull water out of the ground. They can put water into the ground. Uh, they, they can dry a golf course. They, they can make it play firm and fast, even when it's green. Uh, other courses don't have that. So if you try to get green grass, you're not making the best playing surfaces. One of the other things that I'm curious about your opinion and your take on is, at some point in the first quarter in 2002, excuse me, 2020, we are going to get 
a report from the USGA, which is basically going to tell us where they stand along with their counterparts, the RNA, on distance. Now, we know that um, the average driving distance on the PGA Tour was down slightly last year. It's up over the course of the last you know, 10 to 15 years. That's not exactly a, a shocker to anybody. But for the last year to year and a half, the USGA and the RNA have been collecting opinions and different pieces of data and all kind, interviewing all kinds of people with regard to what distance means to them and their perspective on golf. What does it mean to um, elite players? What does it mean to golf course architects? What does it mean to people who run and operate golf facilities, both in the United States as well as outside of the U.S.? All of that learning is supposedly going to be coming out, and they're going to give an opinion about does distance have a disproportionate effect on the game as a whole? And we've had some suspicions about things, but nothing is official at this point. But I can ask you, because you're talking to so many different people out there in the resort world and the golf course architecture world, how much has this debate that's been going on and what people are maybe thinking could happen in the future affected the way that golf courses are being constructed, built, maintained, etc.? What is What does distance mean to them right now? Well, it depends on the designer. Um, and what's going on. But the, the thing that matters most is who is the customer in golf and the PGA tour is a traveling circus and they, they get a lot of attention every year, but, but those are elite athletes who do elite things. And most golf is not paid or played that way. So I heard one designer at stream song talking about how, uh, they're never going to get a greens fee from Dustin Johnson. So they're not going to build a golf course for Dustin Johnson anymore. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no reason to chase that championship atmosphere. Uh, for every designer, because if you're not trying to host a PGA Tour event or a major, then why would you build a golf course for it? You you know, why go beyond 7,000 yards when you don't have to? Uh, so there is a, a an approach among several designers these days where they don't have to build these monster championship, quote unquote, championship courses. They've got to build fun, playable courses for normal people that will, you know, be a successful business. And the model through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s was to build big championship golf courses. They were stretching the yardage. I, I mean, you remember when you and I were younger, a PGA Tour course might be 6,600 yards, 6,800 yards. Sure, yeah. And expanded up to 72, 74, 76. And um, so distance certainly has an effect. But at the same time, I don't know how much it affects everyday players. I, I don't know. I played the red course at Streamsong last week at 6,300 yards. And I'm a scratch golfer. I don't hit it very far, but I can play. And I, I had a great time playing that at 6,300 yards. And if that course was no longer than 6,300 yards, if there was no sets of tees behind me, I would have been fine. And I would still go down there and give them my money because it was just so much fun to play in those conditions on a fun golf course where the balls are rolling all over the place. So I can so so I can tell you, for example, that I play here in Central Connecticut at a little club, local place called The Farms in Wallingford, Connecticut. And when I play there, it's playing off at about 6,500 yards, and that's plenty. It's fun. The approach shots for me are the appropriate length. I'm hitting eights, sevens, uh, a couple of mid-irons, but the, a variety of different. I have asked the pros there. I have asked the director of golf there how often people play from the tips, which is 6,900 and change, and the answer is almost nobody. Club Champ doesn't play from back there. He's He's playing from the 6,600 or 65, whatever it is, yards that, that they have. The same thing when I have an opportunity to go up to TPC River Highlands, which is the site of the Travelers Championship. Now, when Bubba Watson and Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and Jason Day are in town, they're playing that golf course that I'm guessing is probably 73 or 7,400 yards. 
between all the housing over some ponds and it's a big, big property. It's a big golf course. Nobody who belongs there the other and plays that golf course the other 51 weeks of the year is playing anywhere near that long of a golf course. The rest of the time they're playing, the guys are playing below 6,700 almost universally, probably closer to 6,500. The women's are, are around 5,800, I believe, if they're going to play four. But there's four sets of tees, if I'm not mistaken, at each one of those boxes. My point, Jason, is that no one from recreational golfers, non-professional golfers, and the most elite amateurs are playing at any of those kind of distances. So it's it, it like you're saying, it, Dustin Johnson's not paying for his tee times, yet there is so much influence, it seems, within the distance debate about what is happening on the PGA Tour or the Corn Ferry Tour. Right, and, and that is whatever is .001% of golf at, at that elite level. And I would include the college players because – they're fantastic, and they hit it farther than the PGA Tour players yeah. do uh, these days. The, the kids coming up are going to mangle golf courses with distance. What that means to a consumer of golf, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that has been connected yet. Uh, when the USGA released their distance report, the most recent uh, comprehensive one, I think, was two years ago when you and I were writing those stories, uh, they, they had not done enough to study the amateur game. They, they, didn't, they, they were not able to include how long the courses were that people were actually playing, what tees they were playing, and how far amateurs were hitting the ball, and how far that compared to, you know, 10 years ago, how far amateurs hit it. Now, in, in Britain, the RNA did do one study, but they were basing all their amateur information on distance on going out and watching players one day on one golf course. Right. Uh, you remember that segment of that story? Yeah, it, they, they basically said that they, they picked up, and numerically it wasn't a huge a lot. It was at one specific club, and the, the men, they said on average, were hitting it about, I'm going to get this wrong, around 205 to 210 yards on average off the tee. The women about 140 to 145. Mm -hmm. So distance sure as hell isn't a problem at that golf course on the day that the RNA is watching. No, and it, it, it's the same thing here. You know, players aren't averaging 270 yards uh, in the amateur game. And it, it, I, I don't know how much distance increase there has been to really affect it. And nobody really knows because there, there hasn't been that study yet. Now, with some of the new stuff coming through with Arcos and, and some of the shot tracking systems and things like that, they might get a better idea on how far people are actually hitting golf balls. Uh, but even that might be skewed because it's going to be the most – uh, committed players who are going to use the Arcos system, mm -hmm. and, and that's going to be their data showing up. The, the guy who goes out and plays five rounds a year with his buddies, his data's not showing up, but he's an important consumer in golf. And uh, so they, they I, I think they need to do more to really find out who their customers are. Uh, I'll, I'll be fascinated to see exactly what's going to happen with it in 2020, and we're all going to be e eagerly sort of awaiting that report. You are probably eager to to use your passport a little bit more. Rack up, God only knows how many airline miles and hotel points you're also <laughs> racking up along the lines. What are some of the places you're looking forward to seeing in 2020? Well, the the main thing on my horizon is the the sheep ranch is being built. We we keep coming back to Bandon, but they're putting in one of the most anticipated courses of 2020. It's going to open to general public play in June, and it, it's a a stretch of land that you used to be able to see. Uh, from parts of Old McDonald, which is the fourth course that was built and abandoned. And you would look across this gorge and over on this field, and there were some golf flags out there, and nobody knew what it was, really. A, a few people in the know would understand what was over there. But 13 years ago, Tom Dope built a course um, that was uh, called the Sheep Ranch over there. And it was 
I, I think it was 13 greens and you played it however you wanted to. And the, there was no real routing. It was kind yeah. of a game of horse. Yeah. And you had, you had to go into town and go to the hardware store and know who to ask for to get access to it. And, um, so, so there were some people over there from time to time, but it was never a real golf course. It wasn't organized like the other courses abandoned. And, uh, the operators of Bandon Dunes have brought in, uh, Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw who have designed a course out there. Bill came up with a routing on, uh, I don't want to say a tight piece of land, but it was a piece of land that was subdivided into two parts, uh, right along the cliffs and then higher up into the woods. And Bill found a way to keep the entire course on the lower portion on the cliffs. And he came up with a routing that has nine greens on the cliff side. Um, none of the other abandoned courses have more than four, I think might be five. Mm -hmm. I'd have to count my fingers here. But, um, so this new course is going to open nine cliffside holes. It, it's very dramatic. They're perched a hundred feet above black rocks, above the Pacific and the beach and everything. And it, it's just a stunning sight. And that's going to come online in June. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that when it's done. I, I got a tour of it earlier this year, uh, when they were still pushing around a lot of dirt and it, it was fantastic then. And you stand on one of the greens. I, I think it's going to be number three and number 16. And it juts out on a rock about a hundred feet past the cliff. And so you're going to have to fire balls out over open space over the beach to get to this thing in the wind. And it, cool. it's going to be as dramatic a setting as you can imagine. I mean, it, it's pebble beach. It's, it's anything you could want hanging out over an ocean. And, uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing Sheep Ranch. I, I hope to get out there early part of the year. Okay. So aside from Band News, what are some other places you're looking forward to going to in 2020? Well, the, the Ryder Cup is coming back to Whistling Straits and the Kohler property there. And it, it just highlights how much Wisconsin has grown in golf. And they, there's so many great destinations. There's Aaron Hills, which hosted the U.S. Open. Uh, there's two courses at Sand Valley. There's Lawsonia. There, there's several courses up there. So when, when you go there this uh, fall for the Ryder Cup, uh, you're going to get your chance to play some great golf courses up there. You need to book a couple extra days and just hang out and see everything that's cool going on in Wisconsin right now. And uh, I'm looking forward to spending some more time in Wisconsin, playing a few of the courses I haven't seen yet, and uh, really seeing what they're all about. I have pretty much mastered the art of playing golf when your stomach is also filled with pretzels, cheese, and beer. So I think my handicap will most likely lower at least two or three shots. I, I'm willing to take on damn near anybody with uh, – with pretzel and beer after every hole, I'm I'm pretty much scratched. So I will look, I would look forward to that. Any other places that are going to be on your radar? Uh, I I want to get to Hawaii. I'm trying to figure out how to get to Hawaii. I want to see the new work that's been done at Kapalua. They've made it play fast and firm again, from what I understand. Uh, when I was at Streamsong, I played with Keith Reb, who is one of Corin Crenshaw's main shapers. Uh, he also built the Winter Park Nine course here in Orlando that's gotten a lot of attention. And and Keith is a great young smart guy. And he mentioned how they removed so much turf, so so much built up turf and uh, just old grass at uh, Kapalua. And they've got that place playing firm and fast. So that's something we can all look forward to seeing in January is because uh, it's going to be the same routing. It's the same holes for the most part, but uh, it's going to play completely different than it did last year for the Tournament of Champions. So I, I want to get to Hawaii, too. But I, I know that makes me like everyone. Don't we all want to be in Hawaii right yeah. now? All right, so 2020 is going to be Bandon Dunes, Wisconsin, Hawaii. Everything's looking good. Jason, have a great new year. I'm looking forward to talking to you real soon. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks, David. Talk to you later.